you're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 26th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, Russia tells the UN Security Council that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb. Kiev and the West say this is merely an excuse for Moscow to escalate its war. Also ahead... Our goal, simply put, is a peaceful and stable region and world. Until the regime in Pyongyang changes course, we will continue to keep the pressure on. Senior officials from the US, Japan and South Korea meet to address the latest threats from the North. But how ironclad is the US commitment to its allies against North Korea? We'll look at Israel's balancing act between the US and China, flick through the day's papers and hear how US domestic politics impacts the country's foreign policy. To be clear, the extremes of both parties have significant isolationist wings. The challenge we have is that the extremist side of the Republican Party has come to absolutely dominate. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. So a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. A senior Ukrainian official has said that Russian forces are digging in for the heaviest of battles in Kherson. A group of liberal US Democrats have withdrawn a letter to the White House urging a negotiated settlement to the war in Ukraine. And Norwegian police have arrested a suspected Russian spy in the Arctic town of Tromso. The man who worked as a researcher at the local university had posed as a Brazilian citizen. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Russia is to claim at the UN that Ukraine is preparing to use a so-called dirty bomb as part of the continuing conflict. The allegation has been vigorously contested by Kiev and senior figures in the West say this is Moscow trying to find a pretext to escalate its own conflict. Jenny Mathers is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Welcome back, Jenny. Good to have you with us. Good morning. Um, Jenny, could you just explain to us what exactly is a dirty bomb? Sure. So a dirty bomb is really the combination of conventional explosives, could be dynamite, for example, um, with radioactive material. And the idea is that the conventional explosives are used to spread that radioactive material as widely as possible. Um, and then the wind you know, is meant to, to spread it further if, if the weather um, kind of cooperates. So it's it's definitely not as dangerous um, as a, a sort of a, of a nuclear weapon. Um, however, it is still uh, a, a weapon which will spread radiation um, and therefore, you know, it will, will create damage uh, and potentially, you know, loss of life. And Russia is claiming that Ukraine is prepared to use it on its own soil. What are these, what, what exactly is the nature of these claims? Right. So, you know, this isn't the first time that Russia has made claims about what Ukraine has done or might do. Um, and what we've seen is a real pattern of Russia claiming that Ukraine 
has done things or will do things that Russia itself is doing or has done. So this is a, a tried and true practice of casting doubt on the legitimacy and the actions of the other side uh, to try and mask things that they're doing. So this is why it's being met with such a lot of, of skepticism, really, in the West and why, why Kiev um, is vigorously denying it. So, you know, Russia is claiming that uh, Kiev is planning a uh, sort of a false flag operation that Kiev is planning to um, unleash a dirty bomb to cause damage on its own people, but in doing so to uh, claim that Russia is doing it. So it's a it's a complicated sort of double bluff situation going on. Uh, tell us a little bit more about these these history of false allegations that Moscow's um, been been churning out. Um, there were an awful lot just before the war started in, in, in Ukraine, before the invasion happened. Um, the characterization of the neo-Nazi regime, just in a way that many argued would, you know, the justification of, of, of its own aggression in the Ukraine. Um, what effect does that actually have on the Russian public? Do, do, do they buy this? Well, these claims, these allegations about the, the evil nature of the, the regime in Kiev and, and the actions of uh, Ukrainian soldiers on the ground are really key parts of the, of the Kremlin's narrative. And it's one of the few ways that they have of trying to persuade ordinary Russians um, that you know Ukraine is at fault and that Russia is in the right in, in invading and in seeking to you know eliminate basically this, this whole regime. And so, yes, there is a certain amount of acceptance um, among ordinary Russians who are getting their news from state TV and other state controlled uh, sort of media outlets. Um, and also, you know, it, it taps into ordinary people's psychological need to believe the best of their own side. And so to, to see the other as the enemy and the other as being, you know, impossibly brutal um, and so brutal um, and inhuman, really, as to be modern day versions of Nazis. So I think these these kinds of claims are persistent. They're, they're perennial. They're a key part of what the Kremlin is trying to do in carving out its own narrative to persuade its own people. And they're persistently being called out as well. I mean, France, Britain and the US have said that the allegations are transparently false. And Kiev, Kiev has actually asked the UN nuclear watchdog to send inspectors to two sites in Ukraine just to establish that none of this is true. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the Ukrainian um, atomic energy uh, state organization that operates the, the nuclear power plants in Ukraine has, has accused uh, Russian soldiers of actually carrying out uh, secret construction in the Zaporizhia power plant, which they've been in control of, uh, which which could be laying the foundations for actually using, you know, nuclear waste, uh, radioactive waste, as as part of a dirty bomb. So there's a lot of allegations flying around. Um, you know, it's it's one of these situations where you know the Ukrainians, as you say, are, are reaching out to an independent organization uh, to try and and come in with its own authority and legitimacy uh, and give an authoritative account of what's actually happening. How hard is it for for, for Kiev to to do that, it, I mean, it's 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 very difficult when you have uh, Moscow telling everybody about some that, that the Ukrainians are actually preparing dirty bombs on their own territory. It is, and I think here the Ukrainians, in part, are you know calling upon independent international organizations to to weigh in and uh, to investigate, but also they're relying upon um, their own reputation and their own legitimacy over a long period now throughout this war of, you know, calling out Russian claims of, of you know, indicating that they're false. I mean, for example, 
um, you know, Russians claimed uh, that the Ukrainians were responsible for the atrocities and, and the abuses and the torture and the murder of civilians in occupied, you know, territory of Ukraine after they they found uh, these terrible uh, sort of evidence of war crimes when they liberated these areas. So, you know, the Ukrainians have have legitimacy in the eyes of many people in the international community, especially in the West, uh, for telling the truth um, and for revealing uh, the crimes that, that Russia has carried out. So I think they, they rely upon this in part uh, to try and counter these kinds of claims that Moscow is making now. The fact we, we now have our rhetoric firmly planted in the in the zone of, of nuclear conflict as well, it almost becomes a regular, um, a regular subject which crops up. Um, this kind of rhetoric and approach, is it coming from Vladimir Putin himself? It comes from, from Putin to some extent, but it comes from, you know, in this case, it's come directly from the Minister of Defence, Sergei Shoigu, who recently phoned um, or spoke on the phone to uh, American, British, French and Turkish uh, counterparts um, to say, you know, to, to sort of give his claims, give Russia's side of a story and say, look, Ukraine is planning this dirty bomb. This is terrible. I'm warning you about this. So it's certainly coming from the highest possible levels within the Kremlin. So this is a message that has been authorised right from the top. And indeed, it, I think the Armed Forces Chief of Staff, Valery Gerasimov, was speaking to his US counterpart for the first time since since May. Um, this is a, a strange moment, isn't it, for, for communications to start up again? Yeah, I think it, it reflects a number of things. I think it reflects the fact that uh, Russia is really very, very eager to get this message out. Uh, and so it's using these high-level contacts, kind of reactivated them after a long period of dormancy. Um, I think it also shows, though, that, that the real power of a, of a dirty bomb is in the fear that it creates, that it might happen, that, you know, what kind of damage it might cause. And so that it's necessary in order to get the full benefit of, of such a threat uh, to spread it as widely as possible and to make it sound as authoritative as possible. Now, of course, we don't know whether these threats will will be you know, realized. It's possible that that there might be a dirty bomb activated uh, in Ukraine. But so far, a lot of Russian threats uh, in the recent past have not come to pass. And so really, it looks as though uh, Russia is using this as an opportunity to accelerate, to exaggerate, uh, to raise the temperature and raise the volume of its threats as another way of intimidating the West, of intimidating Ukraine and saying to everyone who's supporting Ukraine, you know, you have to back off because this is getting so dangerous. And it, it certainly does that, doesn't it? Because you you have on the one side um, the White House saying we're continuing to see nothing in the way of preparations by the Russians for the new, new use of nuclear weapons. So although the nuclear weapons issue is being raised... There's no evidence that Russia's going anywhere near that at the moment. Yet it's backed France, Britain and, and the US slightly into a corner because Washington has been forced to say that Russia will suffer severe consequences for any nuclear use. So it's 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 really sort of heightened the tension without anything really being done. Yes. And this is really the value of, of this kind of rhetoric. And it's something that, that Putin and other Russian leaders have been using for quite some time in their foreign policy, not only in relation to the war in Ukraine. You know, they use this sort of exaggerated rhetoric and reminders that Russia has nuclear weapons as a way of, you know, exaggerating Russia's position in the world and saying, you know, we must be taken seriously because we are dangerous and we might do unpredictable things which will damage the world. So it's it's uh, it's quite an extraordinary line in many ways uh, of diplomacy to to adopt. And we also have um, 
the Russians today notifying the US about their plans to carry out the annual exercises of its nuclear forces. Uh, Washington saying that this lowers the risk of miscalculation at a time of reckless Russian nuclear rhetoric. Um, that is a moment of clarity, could one suggest? Um, possibly. I mean, the... The, these nuclear exercises are things which which happen on a regular basis. They're they're already in the diary in many respects. But of course, it's quite useful for Russia to have them there because it's another reminder that yes, Russia has nuclear weapons, and yes, they're taking it seriously, and yes, they're they're planning how they might use them in the future conflict. Um, so all of these things are part of this background, part of this context of of trying to to send a certain kind of a message to the world um, about what Russia is capable of and what it, what it might do in the future. Jenny Mathers there. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. Join Monocle in Dallas this November for The Chiefs 2022. This is Monocle's unique global gathering for the sharpest minds in business. Hosted by Monocle's chairman, Tyler Brule, and editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. It will convene chiefs in various offices, entrepreneurs and decision makers to share practical advice on how to steer companies. If you want to survive in today's world, you do have to do great brand building, great storytelling that tells everybody, this is my brand. Bringing together 100 international delegates and 10 speakers, the Chiefs guarantees attendees fresh connections, keen insights and expert analysis from around the world. I think we have a situation where sustainability becomes an element of your business. It's not how you spend your money, but how you make your money. The Chiefs takes place at the Thompson Dallas Hotel in the fastest growing city in the U.S. on Tuesday 8th and Wednesday 9th November. To find out more, read about the fantastic speakers and book your ticket, head to monocle.com forward slash events now. The Chiefs 2022. See you in Dallas. here in London, 15.13 if you're listening in Tokyo. Now, just how ironclad is the US commitment to protecting its allies, South Korea and Japan? Senior figures from all three countries meet today to discuss their response to the continued noisy sabre-rattling from North Korea. I'm joined now by John Nielsen Wright, who's Associate Professor in Japanese Politics at Cambridge University and a Korea Foundation Fellow at Chatham House. Hello, John. Good morning. Good to have you with us. So tell us, who has met today and what do we know about what's being said? Well, we've had meetings between essentially the three deputy foreign ministers of Japan, South Korea and the United States. Uh, Wendy Sherman, of course, is in Tokyo to talk to her Japanese and South Korean counterparts. The purpose of the meeting is to send a very clear signal that uh, the US and its two principal Northeast Asian allies are shoulder to shoulder in dealing with what is expected to be potentially a seventh nuclear test um, from the DPRK ahead of the midterm elections in the United States. And of course, it comes on the back of a series of um, missile tests, uh, 27 tests over the course of a year, a range of uh, cruise missile tests, ballistic missile tests, more recently by North Korea. The expectation is that Kim Jong-un is seeking to um, use these provocations uh, to keep the United States on the back foot. And therefore, it's very important, um, given the vulnerabilities of both Japan and South Korea in the face of North Korea's increasing military capabilities, to demonstrate that the 
alliances. The two alliances are as solid as possible. And um, the most welcome development, of course, is the improvement in dialogue between Seoul and Tokyo. And this is, uh, I think, symbolically and practically an opportunity to reinforce that message. United with a common enemy. What do we think will be achieved by this? I mean, you mentioned the very important dialogue between South Korea and Japan. But in terms of the way that the United States and South Korea and Japan can operate together in the face of a threat from North Korea, what can actually be decided? Well, I mean, we've seen um, both trilateral joint exercises um, and also current exercises going on between South Korea and the United States. Um, All of this, I think, is an attempt to send a signal to Kim Jong-un that the alliance remains militarily strong um, and that there will be a proportionate response if the North does anything that would be considered even more provocative. A nuclear test, of course, um, would not be new. It would be the seventh nuclear test from the DPRK. And the traditional route, of course, is to use the United Nations and the sanctions regime. The problem there, of course, is that we've seen a reluctance recently by both China and Russia to impose further pain on the DPRK. And therefore, the only recourse that the United States has, but it's a significant one, is to strengthen military cooperation to ensure that the North doesn't do anything beyond what it's apparently planning to do in terms of a seventh nuclear test. If Kim Jong-un hopes, of course, that a test will potentially destabilize alliance cooperation, he's miscalculated. If anything, it's now stronger. So reinforcing that idea of cooperation and a common position is important, both symbolically and practically, and in a way to demonstrate to Kim uh, that his efforts to sow dissension amongst the Allies is not working. What kind of commitment are we talking about here? Because the US has always said that commitments to the defence of the Republic of Korea and Japan are ironclad. But the US senior State Department official Mark Lambert has said that US policy does not support redeploying tactical nuclear weapons to South Korea or to have a nuclear weapons sharing arrangement with Seoul. So one wonders at what point the ironcladding stops being so iron. Well, I mean, it's a good point. Um... You know, do you need to actually cite tactical weapons on South Korean territory? Do you need um, a further deployment elsewhere in the region? Particularly given that what we see from North Korea is an attempt, as they would frame it, in fact, they'd be more explicit about this, to develop their own tactical nuclear weapons. This is the big fear that miniaturization of nuclear capabilities deployed on effectively cruise missiles will put the United States and its allies and U.S. key bases such as Okinawa and potentially Guam in range of North Korea's um, nuclear deployments, if you like. And so there is a logic to thinking in terms of further deployment in the region. Um, Extended deterrence, which is the framework that currently operates, um, relies, of course, on on the assurance that the United States will respond proportionately and directly to a nuclear threat. This, of course, is not confined to Northeast Asia. Uh, The situation in Ukraine is a further reminder, uh, if we needed one, of the importance of signaling um, the strength of deterrence in the face of potential nuclear escalation by Russia. And and that's a lesson which will not have been lost on Kim Jong-un. Any weakness in Europe, of course, could then in turn encourage him to be more provocative The other consideration, of course, is the danger of nuclear proliferation. We know that public opinion, um, particularly in South Korea, is open to the idea of South Korea acquiring its own 
nuclear capabilities. Uh, and the United States, for obvious reasons, wants to avoid that development. So stressing the importance of coordination and extended deterrence and frameworks such as um, joint di dialogue between the United States and countries like South Korea and Japan to look at the ways to strengthen extended deterrence is designed to offset that possibility. All of this um, comes on the back, of course, by, of renewed efforts by the governments of both Japan and South Korea to explore ways in strengthening their own defense preparedness. Prime Minister Kishida has made it very clear, for example, that he wants Japan to develop what's known as a counter-strike capability so that Japan can be in a position to respond to a potential attack potentially involving nuclear weapons by North Korea. Um, and that's not necessarily inconsistent with the alliance framework. Um, the United States has real practical limits in terms of its own capabilities um, and therefore will welcome, I think, the efforts by both Japan and South Korea to bolster their defense preparedness. Um, the question about how best to do that um, is is one that the leaders will be discussing, I think, I'm sure, in their deliberations both today and subsequently. But as part of the background to this, it's important to signal the coordination between the three countries. We've seen that already early this month. We saw President Yun and Prime Minister Kishida talking about the importance of renewed cooperation. And all of that, I think, is a welcome development. John Nielsen Wright, thank you so much for joining us on the line on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Globalist and still to come. To be clear, the extremes of both parties have significant isolationist wings. The challenge we have is that the extremist side of the Republican Party has come to absolutely dominate. We'll go through President Joe Biden's foreign policy stance on Ukraine with the former U.S. National Security Advisor, Mara Radman. Stay with us. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. The Israeli President Isaac Herzog is in Washington to meet the US President Joe Biden and the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. His visit comes at a delicate time as Israel is pulled harder than ever between the US and China. Well, joining me now here in the studio is Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and former Professor of International Relations at Regents University and a regular voice. Good morning, Yossi. Good morning. Great to see you. Very smartly dressed this morning. Um, <laughs> right, let's get down to business. This is the first role, sorry, this is the first visit, I should say, by Isaac Herzog in his role of president to the US. Yes, but he's familiar very much with, with Washington. And uh, as an anecdote, his brother is actually the Israeli ambassador. Mike Herzog is the ambassador, so it's a very family affair right now in, 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 in Washington. But he's familiar. He was the head of the Labour Party. And although the, the, the role of the president in, in, the, in Israel is very ceremonial, it's actually a very political visit. If you look at his schedule, it's, it's highly... So he, he met with Blinken already, the Secretary of State. He will meet with Jack Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. He will meet Biden. He will go to Congress. So it's, it's packed with actually 
content while you expect that from a president in the United States, in Israel, sorry, which is a ceremonial role, it's elected by the Knesset, not by the people, it will deal less with the issues like Iran or China or Russia, Ukraine, uh, the, the agreement between Israel and Lebanon, the maritime border, but it is. Why, why do you think that might be? I think there is a bit of a void because Israel in constant elections. And when you have in three and a half years, five elections, and uh, and the next one is a is few days away, I think it creates someone's, again, Herzog, the Herzog family, it's a very political one. His father was the president of, of, of Israel as well, and, and a former minister. They will find, you know, you will find a way and say, if there is such a void that Israel political system is so busy with itself and dealing with electing and probably after the fifth election will come the sixth election and so on and so forth. There is also a need and for, for a president to be more involved because it represents more stability is elected or selected for seven years. So, so why? So what do we think that Isaac Herzog is trying to get out of this incredibly packed schedule? Well, I think it's a lot of these visits are, are about maintaining relationship between Washington and, and Jerusalem, and and the idea of you know there are the, the strategic cooperation between that's Israel's main ally. Just in the last few weeks, uh, the United States mediated the maritime border between Israel and Lebanon, which is an historic one. Uh, the time that uh, the, the, the Palestinian issue, there are no peace process, but there are a lot of events going on, and none of them is good. A heightened violence in, in, in the West Bank. Uh, Israel stand on, on Iran. Israel is very worried of the United States returning to the JCPOA, the, the nuclear agreement. So it shows more and more evidence. Try, for instance, the use of Iranian drones in Ukraine as another card to show that Iran is not the country that you can deal with. So there is a long line of issues that needs to be addressed. And again, because the government is semi-functioning in Israel, the president, I think, enters into this void. Key to the discussions today, as well as I mentioned a moment ago, was the fact that Israel at the, at the currently is being pulled hard by two different superpowers. We have the United States mm. desperate to maintain its... Um, dominant position as the world as the world's dominant power. We have China as well, which is doing its best to do the same. You see, the the good old days or not so good of the Cold War, in which I haven't heard that described like that for a long time. <laughs> but I see what you mean. It's you know you knew exactly what side you were. So Israel and the United States and the West forged alliance and didn't have an even diplomatic relations until 30 years ago, until 1992, either with, with Russia or China. And Israel was very good in kind of what we call in political science is when the tail wakes the dog. So instead of the big powers actually decide for Israel what to do, it learned how to, as a small country, even now it's only 9 million people strong, with a small population, but very strong economy, very strong military, to try to maintain an interest. And while the big powers confront each other as contradictory uh, uh, 
uh, interest, Israel is play between it. So it needs to have good relation with China because trade with China is, is at the level of $20 billion a year. The Americans are not happy about that, especially when China invests in high-tech and very advanced technologies in, 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 in Israel. When it's, for instance, helping to build a port, Haifa, very close to where the American Navy is, is, is docking. So there are all these contradictory elements and interests or when Israel is not very clear who it supports in, in, the, in the war in, in Ukraine. So it supports Ukraine, but at the same time won't supply it with defensive weapons because it's worried about Russia standing in Syria. So all, in all of this, Israel has to walk between the, 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 the drops there and he does it very carefully. It, Israel does it very well as well. It's mm. always been incredibly good at balancing competing mm. interests and competing powers. But when you have it stuck so firmly between the United States and China, and you mentioned the level of investment that the mm. Chinese are bringing to, to Israel, $20 billion, the construction of a port, the strengthening of the mm. shekel as a result of all this money, um, where does Israel choose its path? So it's 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 very pragmatic about this. In in terms of the rhetoric, is about of course Israel stands with the West and with human rights, and and with liberal democratic values. In practice, and the United States does exactly the same, and we are in Europe, we are doing exactly the same. We need a trade with with China, so we many times. Uh, probably wrongly, not rightly, uh, turn a blind eye to violation of human rights, whether it's in uh, in Hong Kong, as with the girl in China. So this is this is the kind of pragmatic. Now I think in many cases, <laughs> even the United States and Europe as well, trying to be very accommodating when it comes to Israel living within uh, these paradoxes and trying, for instance, to understand in Ukraine the Ukrainian issue, there are Jewish communities both both in Russia and Ukraine. In Syria, Israel has to contain Iran and the Hezbollah, and Russia can control the the air space in, 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 in Syria. So try to, in many ways, to uh, to square all these circles. So there is understanding, but there is always a danger that Israel would cross the line that will upset Washington. Yossi Meckelberg, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on Monocle 24. The time is 7.29 here in London. We'll look at the newspapers in a moment, but first, a quick look at the headlines. A senior Ukrainian official has said the Russian forces are digging in for the heaviest of battles in Kherson. The Kremlin is preparing to defend the strategic southern region, which is the largest city under its control. A group of liberal US Democrats have withdrawn a letter to the White House urging a negotiated settlement to the war in Ukraine. The letter was signed by 30 caucus members and became public on Monday. It's been reported that the letter was released by staff without vetting. And Norwegian police have arrested a suspected Russian spy in the Arctic town of Tromso. The man, who works as a researcher at the local university, had posed as a Brazilian citizen, but police believe his real identity to be Russian. Police have described him as a threat to fundamental national interests. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. The time is, what, 7.30 here in London. Let's have a look at the papers. Joining me in the studio is a journalist and communications consultant, Simon Brooke, another man in a, in a jacket. I am really loving Doing this. Doing my best, just for you, I'm This is like looking <laughs> sharp for the globalists, ladies and gentlemen. I think this is we're sort of setting the bar incredibly high. Um, 
what have you spotted in the papers? Well, Anything to do with the British politics? Funnily at enough, all? I, should, I was going to say I should be wearing a pinstripe suit, probably exactly, because this is very much uh, economics and things. Um, yeah, exactly. So I have it is to do with British politics. Bloomberg um, is looking at the uh, team that Rishi Sunak, uh, the new British UK Prime Minister, uh, is assembling, um, and uh, the point the uh, Bloomberg is making that he's getting his Treasury team back together to run Number Ten. So uh, a number of people who worked with the uh, former Chancellor, now uh, Prime Minister, at num- number 10, uh, when he was at the Treasury, as I say, that he's now bringing into number 10 Downing Street. And Bloomberg, I suppose, obviously with one eye to the markets, as we all are, um, the notes that Sunak has dispensed with most of his predecessor, Liz Truss's Downing Street aides, and is set to promote people he worked with in his previous cabinet job as Chancellor of the Exchequer, according to officials familiar with his plan. So obviously, uh, and it lists, Bloomberg lists a, lot, a, a number of people, both from policy uh, uh, admin and also media who were with him at number 11 uh, Downing Street uh, and obviously making the point uh, that he would want to make that uh, don't worry, the markets, we're on top of this. This is the aids he is changing around and keeping and, and freshening up. However, it was widely reported yesterday that Rishi Sunak stood on the, de- the the steps of Number 10 Downing Street and said, I'm going to be new, I'm going to change, I'm going to be great and then brought the old guard back in. Yeah, you're probably thinking of Suella uh, Braverman. I'm trying not the, to. Uh, <laughs> trying not to. Okay, the, the the Home Secretary who resigned six days ago and is now Home Secretary again. Yes, exactly. I think it's really difficult for him, uh, and especially when he then talked about integrity and she, of course, had resigned because she had sent an email which she shouldn't have sent uh, to do with national security. I think his problem is that he's got to put together a talented team. Obviously, goodness knows we need it at the moment. But at the same time, he's also got to reach across the sort of political divide within the Conservative Party and make sure he is bringing on board all kinds of people who represent various constituents within the Parliamentary Party. I think he's very much aware of the mistake that Liz Truss made, many would say, when she just used her own supporters, so she alienated large numbers of MPs. But yeah, it's such a difficult job, as I say, when you're looking for talent on the one hand, but at the same time, the sort of small politics on the other. What do you think about the tone of communication that that Rishi Sunak set yesterday? I mean, obviously, after that quite sort of surreal speech by Liz Truss, when she she basically said everything had gone right in her 50-day premiership. And we all sort of tried to make our jaws not drop any further. Um, then he comes on and he's he's not there with his family. He's incredibly sober. He struggles to smile, which I found when he was, which was really was, strange. I thought, it's interesting you say that. I was going to say the smile or lack of the mm. smile I thought was interesting. I thought that was a decision by his media people who'd said, don't smile because you don't want to look triumphalist. You don't, you know, you want to make it clear that you're facing a serious uh, challenge. I don't know if you heard, but the one, one photographer even shouted, cheer up, Rishi, which he was absolutely determined not to do. So I thought, yeah, no, it's interesting you pick up on that. I thought that was very intentional. And, and the speech, yeah, I mean, he made it absolutely clear, drawing a line under the truss. I was going to say years because you're used to saying that the Prime Minister aren't you weeks or whatever uh, to, to sort of differentiate his own approach. Um, and also, before we move on, I do want to pick you up. Given the fact that you are so smartly dressed today, the <laughs> Times has an article saying, yes, Rishi Sunak is the best dressed Prime Minister. Um, All the part fa- of the image. The fact that we have been looking at... Um, well, it's not hard, is it, given uh, some recent predecessors. There's a really lovely article that says, here's a Prime Minister who, in contrast to Liz Truss, as well as Boris Johnson, doesn't find the task of buying clothes that actually fit an insurmountable one. 
It's a really important thing, isn't it? But he's got to strike a really good balance here because he's got to make his wealth seem sort of understated, hasn't he? Yeah, and his style seem that. understated. Yeah, and it was interesting, isn't it, when uh, previously we've seen even when he was just chancellor, when he wasn't actually, you know, uh, campaigning for the top job, we saw his officials, his media people putting out images on Twitter and other sort of social media of the dressed down chancellor in his hoodie with his glasses on staring at the screen sort of thing. So um, he's been very, they've been very careful to present the best image of him. I think they're aware of that story during the leadership campaign when he turned up to some event in a place that was less affluent, uh, wearing, so the claim was, £500 Prada slippers or something. And there's a delightful line in this about how Sunak's approach to the fashion crowd uh, issue when you're trying to be five foot six and you want to be statesman-like is to wear a cropped trouser because it makes your legs look longer than they really are. Fashion advice as well as politics. Excellent. Well, this is monocle. Um, Let's let's have a look (laughs) at the Financial Times. Um, Yes, uh, another political story here, very different one, looking at how Jair Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, obviously, voters going to the polls this Sunday. So there's a deep dive in the FT looking at uh, really the sort of broad coalition um, that uh, Bolsonaro has pulled together to support his campaign and, and arguing that actually, even if he loses on Sunday and that Lula uh, does uh, win the election, his his opponent wins the election, that actually there's, there's quite a sort of um, group here uh, what is described as his coalition of the fast-growing evangelical churches, the the army, the police, farmers, business, and a new generation of socially conservative YouTube uh, musicians and influencers. So the paper is making the point that uh, he has this sort of coalition that he's pulled together. And there's even, even a suggestion that the Trump of the tropics, as he's sometimes known, if he loses on Sunday, might come back and would use this uh, uh, coalition as a springboard to get him back into the top job. Because the Financial Times has noticed that Lula's lead over Bolsonaro has in fact narrowed over the first round of voting, which is a huge change of affairs given about six or seven weeks ago. We just assumed that this was a Lula return shoe-in, no problem. And a big problem there with pollsters as well, people questioning the fact that the Brazilian pollsters were perhaps not going out into the countryside talking to the people who uh, are natural Bolsonaro supporters. And we've seen this so many times before, haven't we, that populists have been underestimated or their support has been underestimated in the polls. And then uh, it's been quite a surprise when during the actual election itself um, and and the paper, the FT point has a quote with uh, Camilla Rocha, who's a researcher, who's uh, an author of the book on of a book on. Uh, Bolsonaro saying Bolsonarismo has strong roots in society. Even if he loses, he'll be able to keep momentum going because he'll have a lot of money and I think he will come back in four years, she says. It's that very clever thing. Sorry, Sorry. spoke all over you, Simon. It's It's that very clever thing, isn't it, that when you are in office, you successfully maintain an anti establishment stance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is exactly. It's the classic um, populist thing, isn't it? Exactly. You're you're always with the people against the government, even though you are the government, and and you're against the establishment, even though you are the establishment, sort of thing. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. There will be a guerrilla warfare in politics, I'm sure, if Bolsonaro loses on Sunday. Uh, and as the the FT points out, you know, he's already uh, fighting ready for the next election, should that happen. Um, let's move back to Europe, something that's been uh, covered by Die Welt. Deutsche Welle is also covering it as well, which is a sharp decline in relations between France and Germany. Yeah, so Die Welt, as you say, a number of publications um, reporting that when 
Olaf Scholz, the French, uh, sorry, the German Chancellor, arrives in Paris today. Uh, the papers suggest that he should read the French press and really their damning verdict on his uh, on his leadership. Um, uh, Develt points out that Franco, or argues that Franco-German relations are at a low point. Uh, the uh, governments in Paris and Berlin are arguing about the price gap, price, uh, sorry, the gas price gap, uh, armament projects, and of course that that pipeline uh, that we don't talk about. Uh, and in France, uh, Germany is described as a solo rider, according to Develt, a country on an egoistic path path that doesn't care about its partners in its repeated solo actions. There's now talk of a Germany first policy and as a consequence uh, developed talks of disappointment, annoyance and bitterness amongst the French. And this causes a problem insofar as the European Union has to solve problems together and if you have France and Germany so beautifully aligned with Macron and Merkel finding themselves at odds with each other, it it causes problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a truism, isn't it, to say that the Franco-German access really is the engine room of uh, the EU and of course now you haven't even got Britain officially a member of the EU even though of course it's involved in, in uh, energy discussions and stuff so uh, it really is the, the focus ev- even is is even more on these two countries and develop uh, argues that uh, there's a real fr- sort of freezing of if you like of relations and certainly France sees Germany as being very un-European, if you like, uh, doing its own thing. So it'll be interesting to see whether Schultz can actually reassure uh, Macron that uh, they can continue to work together. Finally, I'm just looking at my notepad that I take notes while on air, and it, it is it is as if Mr. Messi had had a, had had a <laughs> mine's a, a scribble, yeah, had exactly. had a terrible moment with a byro a little while yeah. earlier on. And um, yeah. there is a purpose to me saying this: is that New York Times wants to find out if you have bad handwriting. Yes, it does. So the idea is that, uh, according to the New York Times, is your penship a mess? Uh, can you often not read your own handwriting? Share something you wrote and later found difficult to decipher. So the idea is that um, people would the handwriting is getting worse it says uh, based on a very unsample a very unscientific sampling of colleagues at the New York Times but uh, yeah the, the paper is working on an article about adults who think that handwriting has deteriorated over time and I suppose given that we're all typing now and I understand in some countries of the world they don't even teach children cursive handwriting do they? they go straight into typing or whatever so is it a lost art so the idea is you can submit your uh, a photo of your handwriting um, and then the idea is that uh, um, readers are encouraged to uh, give a suggestion about what it what it could mean or something. I suppose, as I say, very unscientifically, it's probably also part of a project to just sort of chronicle the decline of handwriting. So trouble I'm is, most to... of us can't type either. No, exactly. So what do we do? Yeah. Simon Brook, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. You're with Monocle 24. The US President Joe Biden last week released his national security strategy. It's a document issued by every new president laying out their administration's singular approach to threats facing the country, including the war in Ukraine. On Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak has been hearing from Mara Rudman, who held national security roles in both the Clinton and Obama administrations and is now with the Centre for American Progress. She began by talking about how Joe Biden's strategy differs from that of the former presidents she's Worked with. To me, what was most striking about President Biden's national security strategy is how much it is a natural building of several that have come before. I'll say that in terms of the clear context of the threats from Russia and China. 
that the United States faces, but with a clear look on how the United States can compete most effectively in the world. So the national security strategy shows a clear connection with the tremendous opportunities that the United States is now poised to be able to execute on because of the transformative economic legislation that has moved through the Infrastructure Act last year, the Chips and Science Act this summer, and then most recently, the Inflation Reduction Act, and directly connected to how we can be, how the United States can be most secure and most effective in the world and improve the lives of, of all Americans. So, so A, I think that's an exciting opportunity. Some of it has already been implemented. Other things are well in action to go forward. And I wasn't surprised by the fact that they built that quite centrally into their national security strategy. I do wonder how the strategy changed as a result of outside forces from this year, particularly, of course, the war in Ukraine. Would Joe Biden's national security strategy have had the same approach, do you think, if it hadn't been for Russia's invasion earlier this year? One of the things I think is most promising about the strategy is really the continuing realistic erasure of lines between domestic and international. The kinds of challenges that the United States is facing, we're seeing in Europe, we're seeing in all different parts of the, the world with respect, certainly to inflation right now, the cost of energy, why that is, how it is, but also the threats from authoritarian leaders and the threats to the very fabric of democracy, which we absolutely are suffering here at home in the United States and we're seeing throughout the world. And so I do not think that the strategy changed in reaction to anything that was immediate in the past year. I think those are tactical changes. I think that the strategic focus is quite consistent with what President Biden campaigned on and with where there actually continue to be, even in these times, some Republicans, unfortunately, at the rump of their party, along with many Democrats firmly dedicated to protecting and defending democracy, understanding that the future of our country and the world is dependent on reducing carbon emissions and figuring out how we get to cheaper and more accessible energy costs that are also sustainable, and how we build and create good jobs. Those are not issues unique to the United States, and they are a range of issues that require partners around the world to be effective. And so it, it's major transnational challenges that we are all confronting, and some of our uh, strategic strength is going to be, come from how we work together to tackle them. How does the approach to foreign policy challenges like Ukraine differ today between the political parties as well? I mean, we live in extremely partisan times domestically, but to what extent is there still more of a bipartisan consensus on foreign policy, and especially when it comes to support for Ukraine? Well, I, I think it varies by individual. To be clear, the extremes of both parties have significant isolationist wings. The challenge we have is that the extremist side of the Republican Party has come to absolutely dominate that party, the Make America Great Again MAGA extremists that, that were marginal, probably first seen in the kind of Tea Party time period of President Obama's administration, has now come to dominate. So you have the very odd situation of someone like Leader McConnell, Mitch McConnell, Republican leader in the Senate, who has 
for those of us who've been around long enough, has been a longstanding proponent of supporting Ukraine um, since its independence. Very, very strong on that when he used to sit on the Appropriations Committee. But he is in the leader of Republicans in the Senate is in the minority of his party in the Senate, though he has marshaled forces to help Democrats put forward and support President Biden's support for, for Ukraine. But you have the Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, in the last couple of weeks, raising questions about whether the extent of and whether Republicans in the House, if they become the majority post our upcoming elections, would continue to support the president's request for assistance for Ukraine, which it's hard for me to find the words to express. The dismay, shock, and, and horror in that remains to be seen how McConnell and, and McCarthy work that out on that particular issue. But it's a sign of just how much the isolationist and extremist wing of the Republican Party has come to dominate. That was Mara Rudman from the Centre of American Progress. She was talking to Monocle's Chris Chermak in Washington, D.C. You're with The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's talk business now as Rachel Puppetsoni, national business reporter and presenter at ABC News, who joins me down the line from Brisbane. Good evening, Rachel. Hi, Emma. Good to have you with us. Now, let's have a look at the reaction to uh, the very predictable but very important meeting that was held um, in China this weekend. Yeah, that's right. It was the conclusion of uh, China's ruling Communist Party's uh, annual Congress uh, and Xi Jinping was installed for a third term, as you said, not surprising at all. But what was potentially interesting was the way markets responded. Uh, We saw China's financial market really go into turmoil on Monday. Almost 10% was wiped off the value of some of those big uh, Chinese companies like Alibaba and JD.com. while we saw this broader sell-off, uh, Hong Kong's Hang Seng had its steepest fall since the uh, global financial crisis in 2008, wiping off more than 6% in the day. About $1.3 billion worth of Chinese onshore shares were sold by foreign investors. We saw the currency, the yuan, hit a 14-year low on Monday as well, uh, falling more than 12% in the last six months, actually. Uh, but what we have seen since Monday is a bit of a recovery uh, during uh, Tuesday and today, Wednesday's session, uh, where we saw the Hang Seng up more than 2% today. So that steep fall appears to be short-lived, but it really wasn't without damage. Um, We saw NASDAQ's Golden Dragon Index, which is a a US-listed Chinese stocks index, plummet 14% at the start of the week. And the reason for this is not so much 
the confirmation, I guess, that uh, she will remain as the party leader. But the, those he's selected to be uh, in the Politburo around him, those leaders that will be in that um, committee, many of them are uh, uh, a bit more conservative, I guess. It wasn't so balanced as some had hoped. So it's likely that this uh, strong approach that we've seen to COVID zero, for example, will continue for the foreseeable future, analysts expect, with the new leadership uh, that's been installed. So we have this big shock that we experienced at the beginning of the week, but is there any suggestion that it will ultimately right itself or is this setting a new course? That's a great question. Uh, and I guess w- what we've seen is that uh, rebalance over the last couple of days with uh, markets rectifying those widespread losses that we saw at the start of the week. But what it does potentially set in motion is this um, tougher stance um, from uh, a more conservative uh, ruling um committee. And also at the same time, what we've seen is uh, the GDP data that was released uh, this week, which was actually delayed. It was meant to be released last week, uh, has come out uh, uh, later this week. And it's actually performed better than expected. China's uh, GDP expanding by 3.9% in the September quarter. That's a big increase from the 0.4% in the quarter before and marginally higher than expectations. But what we are still seeing, if you drill into the detail, is continued uh, weakness. Uh, Export growth weakened to 5.7%. Retail sales continuing to slump. Those lockdowns are still happening uh, as a result of COVID-19 and real estate sector there still continuing to crash. Uh, That, of course, will have flow-on effects for um, the the globe. Uh, And the World Bank is projecting that China's GDP uh, will grow only 2.8% this year. So we're going to likely see this continued slowdown out of China as we see this very uh, staunch conservative uh, leadership take hold. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. You're with The Globalist on Monocle 24. Finally on today's programme, Tony Cragg is one of the world's most distinguished contemporary sculptors. He draws on both natural and industrial materials to create new forms of sculptural language. Monocle's Robert Bound sat down with the artist to talk about his creative process and Rob began by asking Tony how he knows when a work is complete. It's a chain of decisions you make along the line. There are junctions, there are a bunch of interesting and more crucial decisions one makes when you're doing a drawing or a making something. And the work I'm doing now is based to some lesser or greater extent on my experiences with the last work I was making. And I realized, oh, you can, so it's not a case of copying or trying to remake what I've already done. It's the path you take. You get to a junction, you, you have to go in a particular direction. That is a change that changes the form and it changes the meaning of what you're doing. I'm always really surprised I've ended up here, what I'm doing now. You know, I, I, I turned the, just turned, turned the camera around just so you can have a, a brand new look at it. And this has just come in from the foundry and I'm just looking at it for the first time since yesterday. I'm thinking, Tony, <laughs> I would never have my life imagined I was going to make that work. And, and so that's probably why I do it. <laughs> well, that's wonderful to see this. Thanks for showing us that, Tony. Looking at your face on the Zoom call here, it's lovely. It's a picture. I can see that you. That's a beautiful work. You've, you're pleased with that one. Where did that? What's the story of that? 
I mean, I'm just generally, I mean, people always ask you what materials and there are endless amounts of material. And at least, I mean, since the beginning of the 20th century, there's been a whole process of providing, you know, new materials for making sculpture with, or even more particularly in redefining sculpture as a way of looking at the physical world, the material world and giving it meaning and whatever. And there are no boundaries anymore. So really, it's really a question of finding out what it's, what it's about and what, what things have, have some importance for oneself personally. So every material has its own range of possibilities and things you can do. And the materials, I know you've always been about the materials. Your work has obviously changed over the years from the stacks in fact, t- tell us about because th- those I love those works. You were using sort of everyday materials in inverted commas, you know, and it but they giving the impression of time and of fossilization almost. It was like seeing a, a kind of cross section of a of a piece of mantle of the Earth's crust or something like that. Did you kind of have a change of was it just a sort of slow sort of evolution in your in your work or was it was there a moment when you kind of a new form suddenly presented itself to you. Suddenly, suddenly that sketch in the morning became something different. Well, you know, I had the opportunity and the privilege of having a really good education in Britain. I went to really good art schools and met a lot of people that sort of had fantastic conversations with. So when I started in 1968, 69 in art school, I mean, I knew nothing about art history. I just wanted to draw and I just wanted to make stuff. I had, I really didn't know about anything. It was an amazing experience. I started at that time in Britain, there was, you know, Henry Moore and then Anthony Carroll, then Richard Longfield and George. So, so the super high level of, of interest in sculpture already before Tony Craig even made anything, you know, and you realize there's real content. I mean, the, the, the thing was about form and content. There was an enormous battle between sculptures, make sculpture making and the ready-made. And basically the ready-made was a super important thing in the 20th century because it widen the scope of materials that we could, it made sculpture into a study of the material world, not just interesting things that you kind of make. So it was a really big step. So as a young person, a 20 year old person, I was immediately absorbed by the new, the new things, by the way, you know, Joseph Boyce and Gilbert George, all these, all the people that were just actually just making work was very near to life in a way. But I had a period when I just started to exhibit in the early 80s, and I'd done a lot of exhibitions in about 1980, I think 1980, 1981, I did an average about 12 shows a year. And I was just, quite frankly, after three years, more or less exhausted. So uh, my parents died and my marriage came to an end. <laughs> All very, uh, yeah, sounds dramatic, but it's, uh, was it was not, not the easiest of times. And then I just suddenly realized I can't go on like this and uh, just arranging stuff. And I found if I was going to get any further, I'd have to change the forms. Every form, you know, I'm looking at your face, you're looking at mine. Everything you see on my face, everything I see on yours, we're reacting to. Every you blink, you smile, you change your face. This is, we're reading form with an enormous accuracy and with all every reading in a second, in tempo, a very, very fast change. We're actually changing our ideas about each other and emotions about each other and whatever else is. But then also, damn it, the furniture we're sitting on and the floor and the curtains. Why would we spend any time even considering how and where we live if it wasn't like that? Everything around us is affecting us emotionally and intellectually. Well, that's what sculpture actually does. 
it's way outside of this sort of utilitarian world, out the necessity to make boring forms. We're testing the material, but what we're really doing, we're testing our emotional scope. We're testing our brains to see how much stuff, how many fantasies or dreams or thoughts we can get out of the material. That's all it is, really. Brilliant British sculptor Tony Cragg there. He was talking to Monocle's Robert Bound and the full interview airs this Friday at 10am London time on The Big Interview. Well, that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Emma Searle. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Hall. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.